fundamentally most people don't think about their own narratives, their corporate narratives or any other aspect in a strategic way. They just sort of go on and just tell a story. And that's not exactly strategic storytelling. That's a version of storytelling, which is perfectly legitimate, but it doesn't lend itself to intention and, and outcomes. And it isn't necessarily scalable nor replicable in any real way. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six- to seven-figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six- to seven-figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your co-host, Nikki Ballou. I'm your other co-host, Michael Palmer. And boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. Our guest today is one of the leading evangelists for the shift in marketing and communications toward impactful integrated content marketing and strategy. He is the CEO of Group SJR. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Alex Jutkowitz. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks for having me. I didn't realize that it was going to feel like that I'm in a boxing ring being announced. So uh, <laughs> it's never happened to me before, but thank you. I appreciate it. It's great. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. So, Alex, one of our mentors is a uh, man by the name of Matt Church. He's the author of a best-selling book in Australia called The Thought Leader Practice. He says that an expert is someone who knows something, while a thought leader is someone who's known for knowing something. I would say that you qualify as a thought leader. It's one of the reasons we have you on the show. Uh, and you've done it without any of the traditional supports that a lot of folks have had. Like you haven't been the host of a, a great big TV show. You weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Tell us your story. How'd you get to be where you are? I had a nice spoon. I grew up in Chile, then Philly. So I did, I did have a spoon. I don't know how silver it was, but it was silver <laughs> enough. Uh, so... My my journey has been across the world of consulting in terms of marketing and communications. I started off as a political consultant and as a pollster. I moved into public relations. I moved into different aspects of market research and different aspects of communications and then into marketing. And then last but not least, about nine years ago, I went into the world of creating uh, owned content. And at the time, I didn't realize that it was called content or it was going to be called content marketing or that I was doing something that I was going to belong to something. But that's the journey that I've been on and that's where I continue to take it and we'll see where it goes. So you've written a great book called The Strategic Storyteller. Tell us a bit about the book and, and, and what the genesis of it was. The genesis is that we do talk about this term content marketing all the time, and I think that it's kind of, it's a little bit like tofu. It only has the flavor that somebody gives it, meaning that it doesn't really have a defined meaning. I wanted to codify a little bit the tenets of content marketing. I wanted to talk about the power of content and how that really relates to storytelling, and really wanted to look at storytelling not as a nice-to-have 
or an inexact science, but something that has a muscular aspect to it that is really rather important. And in fact, in some cases, is life or death. So I fundamentally believe that the ability to tell a story is one of the most transformative elements of it that anybody can have in their arsenal of the types of tools that they use, both in living their lives, but also in living their work lives. It's, you know, it's one of the things that I'm hearing more and more about, and I just love the conversation of story. I mean, I've always loved stories, and, and but I don't think that it's always been a conversation that applies to marketing. And, you know, you've written the book on the strategic storyteller. Help our listener understand how they can start to embrace this powerful means of getting their message out and, and helping grow their business. Well, first and foremost, and you know, you're kind to, to repeat the title, but the title does actually matter. Strategic storytelling is about storytelling with intention. So there's lots and lots of stories that we all share and that we all have. I'm more concerned with stories that have an intent and whether that intent is achieved and where the outcomes that come from it. So, you know, to say, where do you start in thinking strategically about storytelling? You got to start thinking about it that way. Fundamentally, most people don't think about their own narratives, their corporate narratives, or any other aspect in a strategic way. They just sort of go on and just tell a story. And that's not exactly strategic storytelling. That's a version of storytelling, which is perfectly legitimate, but it doesn't lend itself to intention and, and outcomes. And it isn't necessarily scalable nor replicable in any real way. I love it because, you know, I think that's that's important. We We just had a guest on that his whole business model is around focused on outcomes. And if you're not focused on an outcome, well, what are you focused on? And Process. It, right, process, just doing it for the sake of, of doing it. So I love that, that, that bent to the strategy behind telling the story. And I think it's, it's challenging because we're trying to do this work ourselves in, in our companies and trying to figure out how to tell a story. It's, there's a lot, you could say there's a lot that could be uh, told, but it's got to be strategic. Otherwise, for me, I relate to it as a waste of time. Well, I mean, and to your point, editing or saying that you're not going to do something or you're going to exclude something actually is a fundamental skill in, in strategic storytelling. So it isn't just about what you're going to include, it's what you're going to exclude. And that applies for branding as well. But in terms of strategic storytelling, you have to really create a world where there's a set of rules. You're going to break them sometimes, but you want to have a set of rules and a, and a, and a, way, and a, a way of doing things in a methodology and not just be haphazard. So if I were thinking about telling my story in our organization, what do you see as the big challenge that people like myself and Nikki and other entrepreneurs and listeners of the show face when they sit down to actually start thinking about this? The first challenge I see is that most of us don't have an awareness that there's a difference between the, we, the story that we see for ourselves and how we see ourselves and how the audience, the audiences we want to impact see us. There is a gap. I refer to that as the knowledge gap, but that gap needs to be filled. So you have to sort of think about a little bit the other person, not always think about yourself. And particularly as an entrepreneur, and I, I started my company and had, a, had an exit three years ago, you tend to be all about you. And the reality in today's world of content and strategic storytelling 
it's a partnership in the middle. It's what you want and what you care about, and it's also what the audience or the consumers out there care about, and it's a handshake in the middle. And I think that that's the place to start. What is it that allows you to fill your knowledge gap and let people experience you the way you experience yourself or you want to be experienced? Working through those questions allows you to sort of get the fundamentals or at least get the start going of what we refer to as a strategy. That's fantastic. We had um, Nancy Duarte on. Do you know Nancy Duarte? I do. I think she's wonderful. She is wonderful. Yeah, I, I told her when she was on the show that I had an intellectual crush on her work. And she speaks... Uh, you know, I think you should. You can have an all-around crush on Nancy. I think Nancy, <laughs> uh, Nancy's got it all. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. I, I know her from the TED conference. Absolutely. Uh, and I watched her, uh, her TED talk. It was, it was, it was mind-blowingly powerful. Uh, mm-hmm. and how she compared uh, Steve Jobs' uh, launch of the iPhone with uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech uh, really demonstrated the power of this. What are your thoughts on how people can utilize those principles in order to more powerfully convey their message? Because we say there are four primary elements to thought leadership, Alex. Number one is you got to have clarity in in your message and you have to have a clear market niche. Number two is you got to follow a strategy of what we call preeminence or being the best in your field. Number three is have the right mentors, learn from them. And number four is have the right peers. And it seems like in your career and what you're describing, many elements of these particular, these four elements that we say are important are are emphasized. Could you expand on this for us? Yeah, I mean, I think that they are emphasized. Interestingly enough, I have a, a short send-up in my book about the, the I Have a Dream speech as well. Different, different look at it from Nancy's perspective. My perspective in, in the book is talking about how he had rehearsed it, which people don't realize that he had actually – that wasn't delivered extemporaneously on the spot. He had actually done it before uh, in Detroit. And then when he got to Washington, he was able to change it. And one of the aspects I think also of thought leadership is this idea that the only way you act natural is by practicing. Instead, we all sort of go down this path of thinking we're being natural by not rehearsing and not practicing. But that's when we're stiff and stilted and end up looking at uh, a piece of paper to help us or to bail us out of what isn't a particularly compelling talk or conversation. I love that you that you all have developed a sort of code or a, a way of thinking about thought leadership. I think a lot about thought leadership because that's essentially a large part of the of this consult this the suite of services that I sell. And where I think about thought leadership is what goes into content, what drives it, what are the elements, or how do I create a formula for doing for creating something that's great. And in the book, I talk about this idea of wonder, wisdom, and delight. Wonder is the spectacle of something. Wisdom is the, no- is the knowledge. And delight is the fun. I fundamentally believe you have to have all three of these components working together in unison to be able to achieve what is thought leadership or strategic storytelling, however you want to sort of define it. But it's, it's in thinking about those components. That's the, that's the sort of code or formula that I live by, and I can actually check the box if these things are being covered or if they're not, and I can really have a sense of where I think something's going to succeed or fail based on this. That's powerful stuff. It, it seems to me that you have 
powerfully created a very clear and compelling message. And you've done a really, really good job of positioning yourself as being preeminent or being the best or one of the best in your field. Walk us through how you did this for yourself inside your business. So I did a few things that are probably counterintuitive. One, I didn't pursue a very heavy social strategy. So I'm not omnipresent on social. You can see a little bit of my thinking on LinkedIn and you're not going to find me anywhere else. I also kind of bought into the idea that if the right people understood the way that I was thinking, that was enough. So I identified some of the most talented people out there in the world that I respected and clients I wanted to have and ended up working with them. That word of mouth actually worked really, really well for me. And also a willingness to kind of put a velvet rope up and not reveal what we were doing and how we were doing it for quite a long time. Subsequent to the exit and and being acquired by WPP, I changed that posture and we told our story in sort of one fell swoop in Fast Company. That allowed us to sort of create a little bit of the of, of pulling back the curtain and revealing that the wizard wasn't necessarily a wizard, but had an approach and a methodology that that's something that could be interesting. Subsequent to that, it's about driving innovation. It's about thinking where others are zagging. It's about thinking asymmetrically, but it's also about not following what everybody else does and thinking in a way that doesn't get you that sort of, look, I think crowdsourcing is a great thing for solving a lot of the nations and the world's ills and solving a lot of different issues. But I think when we're doing this type of work, crowdsourcing makes you a little bit generic, makes you a little bit commoditized and doesn't allow you to fully explore yourself. And the truth is I'm more interested in tapping my own mind and the resources around me than I am in knowing and keeping score of what everybody else is doing. I think uh, I like that angle and that essentially, thought, if we're talking about thought leadership, that really is the journey that one must go on is to to take all of your life experiences and knowledge and uh, education and relationships and, and process that and keep processing that and seeing how that relates back to whatever problem you're dealing with or the people that you serve or dealing with and how you can bring a new angle, a new perspective to that audience. Uh, look, I could have said it better myself, and I didn't say it better than that. That's I, you're I, a funny guy. You've, you've you've hit a, you've hit upon it perfectly. Oh, I love um, it. But I mean, I have I have, and I think thought leaders do a bit of contrarian streak, a bit of a contrarian streak in me. And what I've just done is help codify it by the way that I go forth in the world and the way I expose myself to certain things and who it is that I engage with. Um, There's no secrets in what I do. It's the way that I stack and shuffle that is unusual and the way that I pull in ideas from other parts of the world and not just sort of directly in my day-to-day. That's right. And your business is not just about you building your own thought leadership. You really help others do this, which is really powerful and important because we talk a lot about people that are trying to get their business to become aware to more people, they're they're working away at it by themselves. And they have the one lens, just their own view. They may not even have people that can give feedback or, you know, even if they are surrounded by people who easily say yes to them. It's a dangerous place because they they can't see what is the real nugget of idea, what is really valuable to other people. And that, I think, for you, what you help others do is to be that lens and to be the contrary and for them so that they can further develop their own message and take that out to the marketplace. 
Well, I'm also in service with some of the most talented and, and, and successful people and companies in the world. And what it allows me to do is learn from the, from the best teachers and at an extremely high level. Synthesizing that knowledge, every so often, I can come out and sort of stack things and shuffle things the way that I have to sort of put out some of my own ideas. But the reality is part of thought leadership is understanding that there's a lot of other thought leaders out there and frankly, many more that have achieved, that have achieved far more and have much greater experience. So part of thought leadership does have a kind of servant element to it. For me, it's easier because I, I run a consultancy. So I am in a service industry. It naturally fits into my day to day. Yeah, absolutely. The guest that we had on recently, James Altucher, talked about that, uh, your pluses, your equals, and your minuses, uh, simply being, you know, the people that are ahead of you, the people that are your equal, and the people that you teach, and bringing all of that back to what you're doing is is incredibly valuable. That, that's right. I mean, look, the ability to curate and convene your own life and to learn that way is what also drives thought leadership outside of the very narrow subject matter expertise of a particular individual. To me, in the world that values asymmetrical thinkers more and more, that's the only way that you can actually sort of curate your life asymmetrically. It's by pulling from lots of different places. A few moments ago, Alex, you were talking about how you're learning from other thought leaders. And I think that's very important for anyone who aspires to be a thought leader or is a thought leader that's looking to to develop their thought leadership more richly and and with more depth. Having the right peers and mentors are two of the things that we talk about that are key elements of thought leadership. And it's important as a thought leader for you to do your own thinking. I mean, Thinking is a big part of thought leadership, but it's also important for you to learn from the thinking of other thought leaders and other mentors and read other books. And and you mentioned that synthesis and synthesizing these ideas has been powerful for you, even from a commercial point of view. It's allowed you to go out there and test this out in your consultancy. So talk about how you've taken your thought leadership, what you've learned from others, synthesized it, and taken it into the market with a go-to-market strategy across various means of delivery? Because you've got a book out there, you've got a consultancy. What are the various ways you take your expertise into the marketplace? Well, at my core, I take it out as a consultant, and that's my day-to-day. Now, I have the benefit of working with a, across a variety of industries and challenges. I've worked in 30 countries. I've worked in politics. I've worked for every industry that you could possibly name. I promise you that I've worked in that industry. And what it's allowed me to sort of interact and take out is all this thinking that keeps getting stacked, moved on, built upon. And when you keep building these things, you sort of think about also trend lines. So one concept that I play a lot with that is in the book is we all bemoan the fact that there's the ephemeral age of marketing. And I bring up the idea of serialization. Tell ongoing stories. As a marketer communicator, I originally was taught to be repetitive. Well, it's harder to be repetitive in a day and age where people can cut the cord and turn me off. They can, they're not going to be likely to turn me off if I tell an ongoing story, if I serialize what I do. And obviously Netflix is a good example of this because everybody watches Their apparently, apparently 80, 80% of people watch one of those shows in a week because they've, t- they've told an ongoing 
story. So it's, it's, I'd like to look at the challenges that the age has and how we take them on. Part of the reason I created this content marketing organization in the first place was as a response to disintermediation of the media and the idea that there were lots of talented writers, meaning journalists, out in the market that didn't have jobs. Why not bring smart people in and see if we could do something with them? That was my first innovation in content marketing. It hasn't been my last, but that certainly is one of them. That's powerful. So you've talked about applying some of the things you've learned across various industries and in politics. I'm curious, how are they different? How do you apply your expertise in a political setting versus in a business setting? Well, I, that's a great question, and sadly, I I, I have an answer, but it's uh, it's one that actually uh, makes me ma- makes me sad. And that is in politics today, still, it's about the dumbing down of the dialogue and of the discourse. In politics, they nobody wants you to know too much. Take Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, for example. Whether you're on the left or the right of that issue. No one actually even fully understands Obamacare, and there was no effort made by politicians to fully explain it. Instead, they want you to sort of just know very little and react to it. In the private sector and working with brands, we're in the greatest and highest time of marketing, meaning that instead of the lowest common denominator, we can appeal to the highest common denominator. We can, as you know, in working with brands or in our own ideas, fill the knowledge gap. I, I, the subtitle of the book is Content Marketing in the Age of the Educated Consumer. The consumer is educated and they want knowledge. They want it packaged with wonder, wisdom, and delight, but they want to be educated. And I think, in fact, Consumers are now looking and getting lots and lots of knowledge, lots and lots of wonder, wisdom, and delight from the private sector. However, in politics, we're still stuck in a superficial dumbing down where it's about name ID, favorable, unfavorable opinion of something, and the scant, most superficial knowledge about something. I mean, if somebody actually wanted to understand Obamacare, why hasn't anyone ever published an app that decodes all of the aspects of Obamacare. Why? Because politicians don't have a vested interest in having us know more. Content marketing at its core and thought leadership at its core is about knowing more, not knowing less. Well, that's interesting because, see, the consumers of content marketing in business and the consumers of content marketing in politics are exactly the same people. So these people obviously aren't stupid. They obviously are, are intelligent enough to make decisions on their own. But the people that are responding to them in business have incentives which incent them to give people uh, more sophisticated thoughts, uh, at least in your experience. And in politics, they're actually incented to do quite the opposite. If they give you, if in politics you give people too much information, they'll tune you out. Is that what you're saying, essentially? That is what I'm saying, and I don't think it's true. I mean, that is what the assumption is, but nobody's tried it. Nobody's tried to give more information in politics. You've seen no sustained effort doing that. Lately, um, I would argue with that you're correct. Um, I've been reading. Oh, I mean, I've been reading a yeah. couple of uh, biographies written by a man named Craig Shirley. Do you know who he is? Yes. So he wrote uh, um, uh, something on the '76 uh, Republican primary campaign and the 1980 campaign, mm-hmm. and I'm reading how people spoke then and, you know, how, how Reagan in particular spoke in both those campaigns compared to how people speak today. And it's night and day. That guy actually appealed to people's highest aspirations. That doesn't happen anymore. 
Well, look at the debates with Bill Buckley and Gore Vidal. The, I mean, the discourse, I mean... Although those two hated each other and they wanted to kill each other. <laughs> yeah, so the discourse today in, in the world of brands and corporations is at its highest level. It's the most transparent, authentic, and information is being shared. It's the exact opposite of politics. I thought originally when I developed these methodologies nine years ago, the early adopters were going to be politicians and, and political campaigns or issue campaigns. Much to my chagrin, that's not who doubled down on this kind of thinking, but it was the largest, most successful companies in America that saw the opportunity to actually decode the complexity that's associated with them and bring their ideas and knowledge to the world. So I, I owe them a, a debt of thanks, but I mean, I do, I do feel bad that I haven't been able to sort of have an impact in the political world as much as I thought in political communications, as much as I thought I would. Yeah, I totally get that. I totally get that. So what made you want to decide to write your book? It was not a difficult or pronounced process. I was approached. I had a conversation about the lack and dearth of sort of substantive thinking around content marketing in terms of books. And I said, let me take a shot at it. See if I can put some ideas that look compelling that I didn't think sucked. And that being a technical term, do. right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a publishing term, of course. Um, <laughs> but it's, I, I, I took a shot at it, and I figured if it, I, if it worked, it would be something that I'd like to see out in the marketplace. And if it didn't, I didn't care if it ever saw the light of day. And so I'm happy with what it what what came out of it. I'm happy with the experience, and I'm thrilled to the with the reception that it's getting. And it's been a, it's been a great experience. I did not think about it as a life changing experience. I thought about it as a logical evolution of the work that I do day to day, and codifying some of my thinking and passion around the issues that I that I sort of see every day. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's an exciting time for story. I'm, I have not read the book yet, but you were very gracious in, in having you're like You're like the rest of America. Well, it's... it's you're, like the, you're like the bulk of America, but you know what? We're, we're getting people every day to read it, so the, yeah. the numbers are going... The numbers are trending in my direction. Well, we just but, received you know, start, it, so it's... We'll read it. Don't worry. We're, it, we're both it's, crazy it's readers. A, it's <laughs> an absolute... You're absolutely right that there's not a lot out there on story. And I think that's comes back to what we talked about earlier is that I don't, you know, things have changed and there's a, people are understanding it differently. They're seeing this opportunity. And so I'm really looking forward to reading it. And I'm, I'm, I know our listener will, I think if people are not focused on story and how it applies to business today, you're, you're missing a massive, you, you said it yourself, a massive opportunity in business right now to connect with the people you want to make a difference for, the people that you want to have come into your business. And so uh, I'm really excited about reading it, and, and thank you for, for sending us a copy to read. Oh, no, no, no. It's my, it's my pleasure, and I, I appreciate being on here. What I was going to say, it's not even – I mean, the reality is I believe that if you can't tell a story, you can't be happy or you can't be as happy as you can be. And that's whether that's in, in the work setting and in sort of positioning yourself, but also, look, we're always positioning ourselves in our own lives. And those that can't tell stories are often rather frustrated and unhappy because they don't connect with the rest of the world. And if you don't connect and you're not tethered, it's a lot harder and a lot more challenging to be happy. Yeah, and I, I would just add on 
to that before we we uh, start to wrap up the show is uh, I'd love to have you back after you know because the new the book is new I'd like to have you back to to talk about what you've seen and how people are using this to transform the way they tell story. Oh, I'd be happy to. And in fact, I think next year I'm going to be teaching a course on the book. So cool. um, anytime you all, anytime you all have me back, I would love to come. Well, you, you know, the power of thought leadership, it just never ceases to amaze me because it allows you to deliver your message and your solution in many different ways and across multiple platforms. So right now you're doing it with your book and you just told us that you're going to go to market with a course next year. And you, you, you know, a lot of people would add on something like a, a keynote speaking engagement on top of that, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it sounds like you're really leveraging your message in multiple ways commercially. That's true. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm really excited to see you do that, uh, Alex, because that's a big part of, of what we preach and evangelize to the people who listen to us, because that's how you can have the biggest impact on the world. And that's how you can also enjoy some of the fruits of your, of your thought leadership in terms of commercial success. I appreciate that. So there's a concept of the book called atomization, which is the idea that you don't create one kind of content asset, that you take a content asset called a book and you dissolve it into its constituent atoms and re-atomize into different kinds of content or different kinds of expressions. And in fact, on my website, you'll see that there's a video series that's going to accompany the book. So each chapter is going to have a video that accompanies it. There was a, a trailer that I led the, the launch of the book with, and now there's uh, subsequent videos will be coming online in the next couple of weeks. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm practicing what you all have been preaching, and I, I'm, glad, we, I'm glad without knowing each other we've got into the same place. Nice, cool. nice. Cool nice. metaphor. I'm, I'm loving it. Connect, <laughs> uh, that's connected a dot for me. Thank I, you. I, I, love, I love the term atomization. That's powerful thought leadership. So it's Alex, yours. Yeah, it is. No, you bet. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, Alex, we end off every episode by asking you, our guest, what are your top three expert action steps or hacks that you want our listener to implement right away to take their thought leadership and their business to the next level? Well, and we just talked about it. Number one is atomize, which is don't just get stuck creating one sort of aspect or one element of thought leadership, one content asset. The second one is serialize. This is perhaps the greatest because we are in the ephemeral age. You don't want things to go away. You want to tell ongoing stories. And I think the last one, but not least, is this idea of doubling down on wisdom, wonder, and delight, and not just making things about being fun or just about being smart or just about being a spectacle, but try to combine all those things when you're creating something. Well, that's fantastic. And your book, Strategic Storytelling, it sounds fabulous. I'm going to read it. Uh, if you're listening to this listener, pick up a copy for yourself, read it, go to Alex's website, watch the videos that are coming out with it. Uh, I know it's going to make a difference in your life. And heck, buy five copies of the book and give them away to your family and friends. And if you're serious and you have a message, and you want to know if your message is going to resonate in the marketplace, and you want to find out how much that innate expertise you have is worth, let's jump on a call and find out if you could be the Alex of your market niche. 
Ask yourself this question. Do you believe in your message enough not to let your own doubts silence your voice? Get your voice heard. Let's jump on a call and see if you can be the Alex in your market niche. Thank you so much, Alex, for being on the show. It's been an honor to spend this time with you. Thank you, guys. You guys are great. great. Thank you. That wraps another episode of the Thought Leader Revolution. To learn more about today's guest and to get all sorts of valuable free business building resources, you can go to thethoughtleaderrevolution.com. Until next time, goodbye.